You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If you want to open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we are uh, going to spend our summer hearing Jesus preach a sermon to us, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous of Jesus' sermons. And uh, yeah, today, uh, I guess in the brown Bibles under the chairs, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, you can use one that's uh, around somewhere. The brown ones, it's page 809. The red ones have a slightly larger print, and it's on page 994 in that Bible. Um, So uh, actually, congratulating these two on their graduation is a great introduction to our message today. It's congratulations season, graduation season, where... You know, you get all these awards, you're going to hear these speeches, all these blessings that are, that are put on these graduates, and all of these platitudes and things that are said at graduations and in graduation cards about what the future holds and what matters most. And, uh, and also, this is a season of acceptance and rejection letters. These two ladies, I'm sure, uh, sent off uh, applications to college, and you, you find out uh, whether or not you've been accepted or rejected for a scholarship or for... Uh, into a college, and uh, you can tell a lot by the first lines of, of a letter, right? If you get a letter and you're hoping to be accepted, the very first line usually tells you a little bit about what the letter is going to be about. If the very first line is, congratulations, then the rest of the letter is going to be good news. If the letter starts with, we regret to inform you, or we are sorry to report, right? The very first words often in an acceptance or rejection letter tell you a little bit about what the rest of the message is going to be that's delivered. Uh, I found this one guy named, or gal actually, Sivan Odell, who applied back in 2015 to go to Duke University and received a rejection letter. And so she responded with a rejection letter of her own. And this is what she wrote. She she wrote, after careful consideration, I reject to inform you that I am unable to accept your refusal to offer me admission in the fall of 2015 freshman class at Duke. This year, I have been fortunate enough to receive many rejection letters from the best and brightest universities in the country. With the pool of letters so diverse and accomplished, I was unable to accept all the rejection letters and, uh, and would, would have been only to... Oh, I'm sorry, I lost my spot. Despite Duke's outstanding success in rejecting previous applicants, you simply did not meet my qualifications. Therefore, I will be attending Duke University's 2015 freshman class. We'll see you in the fall. So... It, that went viral back in 2015, very clever uh, response. And uh, anyway, I think Duke then responded and said, uh, she's, well, she's able to appeal if she'd like. But that was about it. That's about all that they would say. So uh, the same thing applies when it comes into this Sermon on the Mount. The opening line really tells us a lot about what the rest of the message is meant to be. So as Jesus has been doing ministry, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, as we saw in Matthew chapter 4, healing people, he's got people from all different places, all different economic backgrounds, following him. And like we saw last week, he sees them and then he goes to a high place where everybody can see him and then he sits down indicating that uh, he is about to teach them uh, the way of the kingdom. And we get this beautiful kingdom values discourse. We get this description of what the kingdom is like and what the culture of the kingdom is. It's a bit like a constitution uh, that Jesus then lays out of what his kingdom is like and how kingdom citizens enter and conduct themselves in his kingdom. So that goes from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. And the opening lines is this, is this section of Beatitudes, where Jesus opens up with blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is the opening line, which really, I think, kind of sets the groundwork for everything else. Being poor in spirit is fundamental to being part of Christ's kingdom, this poverty of spirit. And Some would translate blessed as happy, that would be good, but I think a better translation might be for us is congratulations. Congratulations. Let's read the Beatitudes here. I think it's maybe on the slide. If it's not, then you can kind of see it in there. But let me read through verses 3 through 12 through the Beatitudes of Jesus, the opening letter to uh, this opening of his sermon about what the kingdom is like. And let me read it this way, because I think this captures the spirit of what blessed means. Congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations to those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Congratulations to the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Congratulations to the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Congratulations to the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Congratulations to the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Congratulations to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations to you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So congratulations or blessed gives an indication of what's valued, what's treasured, what does the king desire, what kind of qualities gain his approval, what kind of disposition brings about reward. And that's what these Beatitudes get to. What I want to do in our time together is, is, is basically divide our time into three parts. One is to just notice the beauty of the whole. I want to show you just how these Beatitudes sort of fit together and what they're doing as a unit. Then I want to do just a real quick snapshot of each of the eight Beatitudes and then, and then wrap up with right and wrong ways to respond to the Beatitudes. So let's, let's go into the very first one here, just an orientation to the Beatitudes. So I think we see that the first eight, there's eight of them here, and then the beatitude that's in 11 and 12 moves from third person to the second person. I think it serves as a transition into the rest of the sermon. So I think we're meant to see these first eight as a unit, and, uh, and they seem to be constructed in a way that's in Hebrew term uh, a chiasm, which means that the beginning and the end match, they rhyme thematically, and then you work your way in, and then you get to the midpoint. It's like going up a mountain and going back down. This is a Hebrew way of organizing things that's strange to us kind of in the West, but I think for a Hebrew mindset, and that's kind of his primary audience here, is Jewish people, they would be used to seeing information organized in this way. Uh, so, so you can see that the first and the last are about the kingdom of heaven, which means that this whole beatitude section is about unveiling the kingdom. And then in the very middle, we have that this kingdom is about righteousness and mercy. So we see everything kind of driving into that, that this, this is, is this communicating one unified thought about the kingdom and what it means to be righteous in the kingdom, what it means to have received the mercy of the kingdom. Uh, so just to, for those of you that are nerds in the room, I want to go to the next slide here and just show you why I would say that this is the structure, is that Jesus actually uses, uh, the, that's the, uh, the letter pi at the beginning there of each of those descriptions, the first four all start with the same letter. I think Jesus is alliterating. He would have made a great Baptist preacher because he's alliterated his first four points, which I think tells us that that first section is a unit, which then means the second section is a unit. Those, aren't, those don't match, but I think there's an indication behind the text that we're supposed to see this as a, the first four are a unit describing one thing that are building a progression there, and then we come back out of the progression from kingdom of heaven to kingdom of heaven, moving through this. So those of you that uh, can appreciate that, there you go. There's your little bone there to, to chew on. Uh, I love that there's another way to structure a chiasm. I think this is right. If you want to go to the next slide here, I'll show you that what's cool is, is that not only do three, do the first and the eighth match, but you actually can match them up this way too, to where three and seven kind of match up. Congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that inward disposition of being poor in spirit then matches outwardly for you being merciful. You now realize that other people are poor in spirit and need mercy. Those who mourn, pure in heart. Congratulations to the meek. Congratulations to the peacemakers. And then you have this theme here of righteousness ends the first section, the fourth beatitude. And then the last beatitude talks about what, what happens when you pay a price for righteousness. So my point being is that this set of beatitudes is just intricately put together to show us what Jesus's kingdom is like. It's just, it's like a sermon in and of itself. And it's beautifully constructed in its, uh, in its form, and it just is a masterpiece, really, literally, right out, of the, right out of the gate. So Jesus describes his kingdom so succinctly about congratulations, these are the things, these are the values of the kingdom. This is what describes the kingdom citizen. I would say that the first four talk about our passive in, inward disposition towards God, so the, the first four are really more passive. You really can't make yourself mourn. You really can't make yourself meek. These are sort of dispositions before a holy God that you feel. You feel poor in spirit. You sense and mourn over your sin. You're meek and humble in your disposition, and you have this hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are all Godward. Those are all, I am broken before God and need Him to save me, Right? Then what happens is that when one is accepted by God and brought into the kingdom and transformed, filled with his spirit, justified, then the second four are outward, active outward dispositions towards others. So you have a disposition before God, 
that precedes then your disposition before others. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself, right? So we have that actually constructed in the Beatitudes. The first are your inward disposition before God, and then having been filled and given mercy and righteousness by God, you then begin to live differently towards others. You have an outward active disposition towards others that's different. You have mercy towards others. You have a reputation of being pure in heart. You're a peacemaker among others, and you're going to pay a price. Your outward, your inward righteousness received by God is now going to cause you to live a different life outwardly that's going to receive persecution, okay? So you see how these Beatitudes kind of fit together? A few characteristics, I just want to rapid fire these out at you, is that these Beatitudes really are the fountainhead of the whole sermon. We're going to see, I'm going to show you how each Beatitude actually is double-clicked on, it's fleshed out later in the sermon. It's a confrontational counterculture to the world's kingdom. It's totally upside down from the kingdom from the kingdoms of this world. The things that are valued in this world, the things that are congratulated in this world, are entirely opposite. Jesus is showing us that his kingdom is countercultural to everything, every other culture you've ever experienced in your life. It's an obliteration of the natural self-glorifying human heart. You're going to realize that these beatitudes really require a person to be very small and low. And our desire is to make much of ourselves, right? Well, actually, what God congratulates, what Christ congratulates is lowness, humility before Him, not loud and boisterous. It's also a rewiring of the logical connection between root and fruit, cause and effect. Like, we typically don't think the meek, the humble in disposition, will be the ones that conquer the earth, right? And so, He rewires our understanding of cause and effect, because in the kingdom, what there's no way that that works. Why would anyone want to mourn? Why would anyone seek mourning? Well, because there's a reward, there's a comfort. Why would anyone want to be meek? Isn't it the people that are loud? It's the politicians that are loud and own the other side. No, it's the meek that inherit the earth. And so there's a rewiring here of our connection between root and fruit, cause and effect in the kingdom. It works differently. We need our, our thoughts rewired on what the exercise of power looks like. There's multiple descriptive faces of the same diamond. So this is not a ladder we climb that we start poor in spirit and then we move on from that to mourning and then we move on to that to the next one. Uh, There does seem to be a progression in them, but they're not ladders. It's not steps that you leave and go to the next one. Uh, They're not meant to be seen as separate, like, okay, you're the mourning, so you get this reward. You're the the peacemaker, you get this. this. This is meant to be a unified whole, like looking at different faces of the same diamond. This is describing the same kingdom. The kingdom citizen is, should be growing in all of these actions. So it's more like a, like a symphony with different instruments playing their part, right? It sort of builds. There's like the foundational instruments and in rhythm and melody, but then it's built up over the top of that to where you get this beautiful music of all of these beatitudes working at the same time, showing the, the marvel of the kingdom. So there is a progression to them, but not in the sense that you move from one to the other, you are, should be modeling all of these. And so the, the kingdom citizen is always poor in spirit. The kingdom citizen is always mourning in this side of heaven because he understands his sin. On and on, you see. So we see these qualities and the rewards of all citizens. These are the qualities and rewards of all kingdom citizens embodied in Jesus Christ himself. The king's authoritative explanation of what matters most to him. That's what we see in these Beatitudes. What matters most to Jesus? When he looks out at people, when he talks about the kingdom that he is bringing, what kind of kingdom is he bringing? This is the kind of kingdom he's bringing. This is the currency that we're to trade in, poor in spirit, mourning, peacemaking. This is what the disposition we're to have towards others and towards God. These are the values, the virtues, the descriptions of the king himself, his kingdom, and his citizens. So that's sort of an orientation to the Beatitudes as a whole. They're really quite amazing. In fact, I'm a bit regretting trying to do the whole thing today. This would be a great summer series just in and of itself to spend a whole week just diving into what does it mean to be meek? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And we will at some point. The sermon itself will take us into some of those things. Uh, But for uh, the sake of today, we'll now do a snapshot of each of the Beatitudes. So we've got eight of them, so hang with me. I'm going to try to do them quickly. Just give you a quick snapshot on each of these Beatitudes. Um, And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just give a synonym for 
the value. So instead of spore and spirit, I'm just going to give you a synonym, maybe explain that for just a couple sentences. I'm going to give you a reference that's on the screen where there's actually an Old Testament theme that Jesus is pulling in. He's going to say later in the sermon that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, but came to fulfill it. So each one of these beatitudes pulls on a thread from the Old Testament, that this was always God's intention that this would be the kind of kingdom that he would bring. We see it kind of veiled at times in the Old Testament. Now that the king has come, he's making very explicit what at times was lost in the Old Testament about what was meant to be the kingdom of heaven. Then I want to show you just briefly where each of these Beatitudes shows up in the, in the sermon, where Jesus double-clicks on it later in the sermon, and then just uh, remind you of the reward that's promised. So here we go. We're going to do this pretty quickly. If you're a note-taker, you're going to get probably frustrated because I'm going to go fast enough here, but I'll, I'll send you this stuff if you want this. Uh, you can also, uh, this is all recorded online as well, and so you can, you can follow back through if, if, um, if going through these there was more that you wanted to get down than I spent time on. So... Let's go through each of the Beatitudes and give a quick snapshot. So it starts with, remember, the opening line of a message tells so much about what the rest of the message is. And here it is, congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If I were to put this, if I were to explain this, I would say this is spiritual bankruptcy. This is a person who looks at their life and realizes I have no standing before God at all. I am poor in spirit. I like the way Kevin DeYoung puts it. He says, Christ's kind of man or woman is the one who has nothing and knows he has nothing. It's the person who knows they're poor spiritually. Some have described faith as the open Godward hand. The Rock of Ages, the song says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So the foundation, the foundation of the whole sermon is really poor of spirit. Like I have no righteousness of my own by which I may come into the kingdom. I am poor in spirit. I have poverty. I declare bankruptcy spiritually. You look at your spiritual bank account and it is overdrawn. Nothing there. You look at the righteousness of the kingdom. You look at the law and you go, I don't match up. That's the fundamental starting point to being part of the kingdom. We can go back to Isaiah chapter 61.1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus quotes this in Luke 4 and says that that's about him, that he came to preach good news to the poor, particularly here, the poor in spirit, those who spiritually know that they have no righteousness, no right standing before God. Now, later in the sermon in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, Jesus is going to say this. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do, not, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from you, from me, worker, you workers of lawlessness. Now, maybe you've read that before in Matthew chapter 7 and been kind of scared, like, wow, you can do all these great things for the kingdom and still not get in. I think the point Jesus is getting is that there will be some who come and forget the poor in spirit part. They will come and believe that they deserve aspects or access that they deserve entrance into the kingdom because of their merit. We did many wonderful things in your name. And Jesus is like, you forgot the first beatitude. You forgot the opening line. You don't enter the kingdom. Lord, Lord, and you don't say, did we not do great things in your name? Lord, Lord, I have nothing to bring. So it's possible, we're going to see later, to do many great things for God and lose the poor in spirit disposition that is really fundamental to coming to Him. So that's what makes that scary is they're coming wanting to bring their credentials and Jesus says, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. You forgot to be poor in spirit. You don't bring any credentials. And the reward promised is the kingdom of heaven. That's what He's been preaching. You get the whole thing. You get the whole kingdom. You get full access to everything. If you're poor in spirit, Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's the fundamental beatitude. It's the fundamental disposition. It's the whole thing. It's qualification number one. Beatitude number two, verse four. Congratulations are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If I were to explain this one, it would be like this. A grief over sin. I don't think it's mourning just generally speaking. I think it's talking about mourning in relation to the first beatitude. I think in its context, it's talking about you realize you're poor in spirit, beatitude one, And then you feel a deep grief over your sin. 
You feel deeply sad. You mourn over your sin. You mourn your spiritual condition before God. Again, we can go back to Isaiah chapter 61, the very next verses, verses 2 and 3, to, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. You could just read Isaiah 61 right next to the Beatitudes and go, oh, (laughs) Jesus is pulling so much of what's promised in Isaiah 61 about a Messiah who will come and will right the wrongs and what he will do for those who feel the brokenness of the world and feel the brokenness of their own soul. Like you can just kind of look around this room and like 50 years ago, a pretty tragic event in a fallen world happened and there was a tremendous loss of life, that whole list on that pole there. So it's a mourning over your own sin, but I think it's also a mourning over just the effects of sin, like just deeply grieved about the state of the world, and particularly me, me, I'm broken, I'm sinful. Jesus is going to press this really hard later in, this, in chapter 5 and verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which is just... In, in many ways, meant to just sort of bring you to that low sort of mourning, like, I, I, can't, I can't make it. Like, Matthew 5, 48, you must therefore be perfect as your Father is perfect. Just to, to push you to a point of, of grief, like, I, I don't qualify. I'm poor in spirit, and I feel deeply grieved by that. So it's confession, but then it's also contrition in the second beatitude. And the reward promised is comfort. Your sin will be dealt with. What's wrong and broken in you will be fixed. If you deeply grieve the sin that you've committed before God and you grieve that Godwardly, he'll go, I can, I can fix this. I gave my son for this. Sin will not get the final word. Be comforted. You won't always feel the regret and the brokenness that you feel over your sin right now. That's a good sign. That's a Godward grief. And he's not going to give just a cheap comfort of sort of like a Hallmark card. He sent his son to come deal with that, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief who will come and stand in your place and take the punishment that you deserve so that you might be lifted of that grief one day. It's been laid on Christ so that you then can be made whole and right, no longer poor in spirit and comforted. The third beatitude, congratulations to the meek for they shall inherit the earth. My explanation of this would be a humble submission to God, especially one's own disposition so the meek, meek is, this is tough to, this is tough to nail down because meekness has so many different qualities that doesn't quite match up, like in no one word kind of explains this very well. It's not weakness, it's not timidity, it's not like a self-loathing, but it is an owning of your status with humble honesty, not comparing yourself to others and not self-justifying. I think that in its context is what, in, what is being communicated here. Someone who has recognize their sinful state, poor in spirit, they grieve it, and now they sort of own it. They they realize in meekness, lowliness. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, preacher from long ago, famous preacher, says this about meekness. Meekness is a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and a conduct respectful to others. The meek leaves everything, Ourselves, our rights, our cause, our whole future in the hands of God. The meek just puts it in, hand, in God's hands and doesn't try to make things happen in their own strength. Meekness means that you have finished with yourself altogether and you come to see that you have no rights or deserts at all. So I think in light of the first two Beatitudes, meekness is going, yeah, I, I really am a sinner and I have no excuses. There's such a desire within us, right, to recognize our sin maybe even feel bad about it, but then to excuse it. Well, it's not as bad as so-and-so. And this person made me do it. Think of the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, they sin. They immediately recognize they've sinned. They realize they're naked. Instead of mourning, they cover and hide, right? And then when confronted, if only Adam would have had some meekness. But instead he goes, the woman, she made me do it, right? If he'd only had some meekness going, I, I have sinned against a holy God. I deserve death. 
I don't know. There still would have needed to be an atonement, but can you just imagine? Maybe the story would have been a little different (laughs) if Adam and Eve hadn't had a disposition of minimizing, hiding, and blaming. If there'd have been a meekness there of going, yeah, you're right. I am a sinner and I deserve wrath. Meekness. Not blaming others, not self-justifying, just just lowliness before God. Psalm 37, 10 and 11 talks about this. Listen to this, Psalm 37, 10 and 11 says, In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Later in the sermon, in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus is going to say this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Meekness doesn't put on a show. Meekness has an honesty and an integrity before God. Cares about what God thinks and acts accordingly as opposed to what others think. And then the reward promised is so strange, the new earth. What? Name one world conqueror who was meek. Alexander the Great, right? Like, who wins a presidential election? Who gains power in this world? Like, who gets stuff by being meek? Nobody, but in the kingdom. Jesus values it, and as the king, he gives to those who are meek. Those who are willing to wait till later, who don't try to claim it all right now, are willing to just accept their position before God, not shifting the blame, not trying to make things happen in their own strength. God will reward them and go, and I'm going to lavish the whole earth upon you. You will end up being the ultimate conqueror the meek. What a strange reward. We would not have expected that, but that's what Jesus promises. So then we get to the last of the first four. Congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I would describe this as a deep heart desire to be made right. That's what righteousness is about, is rightness, rightness before God, that I'm right. I'm in a right relationship with Him, and I'm in a right relationship with myself and with the world, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst presume that you don't have any. Like, if you're hungry, hungry for a hamburger, it's probably because you don't have one, right? <laughs> you're hungry. You don't have it. And so this deep hunger of like, okay, I've moved from, I realize that I am bankrupt before God. I'm deeply grieved by it. I own that, that I deserve to be in the spiritual state that I am. I deserve to be under God's wrath, but I desire to be right, right? This, this deep hunger and thirst, like I desperately need righteousness because I don't have it. Rightness with God inwardly, rightness before God outwardly, the ache in the heart to be made whole. The word holy has this idea of being made right, set apart, pure, The word shalom, peace, has this idea of wholeness to it. I want to be whole. I want to be right before God. Starts with poor in spirit, recognizing I'm not right. Mourning, your not rightness, owning it without blame or comparison, meekness, and then genuinely desiring a righteousness that's not your own. It would be given to you from the outside because you don't have it. And the promise there is that you'll be satisfied. You will get a righteousness that's not your own. If you hunger and thirst for it, you know you don't have it. You can be given a righteousness from someone else. Someone is willing to trade spots with you. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus where he'll exchange his righteousness for your sin and you will have satisfaction in knowing that you are right with God. That's what the kingdom offers. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, and verse 7, it's a longer passage, I won't read it now, you can look at it later. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, verse 7 promises this, so Jesus is not bringing in a new idea. And then later in the sermon, Matthew 7, 7 through 11, ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks it will be opened. For which of you, if your son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things to those who ask? Another one of the Gospels actually puts it, gives the Spirit to those who ask. So if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you can go to God and go, I have no righteousness of my own, can I have yours? And He'll give it through Christ. He'll give it. So those first four, these inward dispositions towards God, 
really are at the heart of the gospel message. They're at the heart of the kingdom. But they don't stop there. Because God then transforms us with this imputed righteousness. This mourning, this poorness of spirit then begins to have a spillover effect. Our relationship, our reconciliation with God then has a spillover effect on how we treat others, which brings us to the second four Beatitudes. It goes from internal to external, from gifted righteousness by Christ to lived righteousness in the world, from root, a right relationship with God, to fruit, which means a right relationship with others. Which brings us to the next, the fifth beatitude. Congratulations to the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I would explain this as extending undeserved kindness. Someone gets a good thing from you that they didn't earn. How you respond to others. Because you recognize and you remember how poor in spirit you are and how God had mercy on you. And that's what you'll see throughout the sermon is that if you've received something from God, you have an obligation to give it away. If you've received forgiveness, you should give it away. Or else there's really doubt on whether you've forgiven or you've really been forgiven. If you've received mercy from God, then you've got to give that away or else we have reason to question whether you've gotten it. If you've received the gospel truly, you've got to give that away or there's really begins to become doubt whether you've actually received it personally, right? That's one of the principles of the kingdom is that if you've received it, then you've got to give it away. So an extending undeserved kindness to others. James 2 talks about this. Your brother needs something and you say, be warm and well fed and you leave him. He says, that faith won't save anybody. But if your faith leads you to do something, to relieve the suffering and hurting, the desperation of someone else, well, then you're giving testimony to the one who's given you mercy. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Ah, that's amazing. Whoever is generous with the poor lends to the Lord. God identifies with the poor one. Whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. Jesus says that again and again. So the person who needs mercy, you're inclined to be merciful. That's a good indication that you are and already have received mercy. In Matthew 6, a little bit later, Jesus is going to say, pray this, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God, we've given it away, just like you said. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. One of the marks of a Christian is that they give away what they've received. And what's the reward promised? Undeserved kindness and pardon from God. So it's not like we're earning this. Don't forget the first four Beatitudes. It's not like, hey, you're doing this, you better be merciful, or you're not going to get mercy. It's, it's really more cause and effect. It's in light of the fact that you've received mercy, you verify that you've received mercy by giving it away. You can't give away what you don't have. The fact that you're giving it away shows that you have it. You know the phrase, hurt people, hurt people? Well, mercied people, mercy people. There you go. You can write that down. Josh is real good with words. So, Let's go to the next beatitude. Congratulations to the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the idea of holy devotion, being set apart, pure in heart. It means you're all about one thing. You're all about one thing, this set apart in your conduct and your motivations. You love the one thing so much that it keeps you away from sin. You love God so much. You desire to please Him so much that it just sort of steers you away. Your desires, you're killing off the desires for sin because you have a greater desire in you, which is to see God. I want to see God, which means that now I don't look at this stuff anymore. I don't say these things anymore. This pureness of heart, this singleness of heart that develops within one who is a kingdom citizen. The desire for sin is overwhelmed by a greater desire to live for the king and his kingdom. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Singleness of heart, soul only to God. Not giving God this part of my life and then giving something else this part of my life. But no, God has my whole life. Who does not lift his eye, his soul up to what is false, nor swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Later on in Matthew 6, Jesus is going to say this later in his sermon, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where, moth, uh, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves nor thieves break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He speaks of heart again. 
treasuring and purity of heart. I'm about one thing. I'm about one thing. The eye of the lamp is the body, but if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, purity of heart. You will either love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, but seek first, verse 33, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Purity of heart, singleness of heart, living for him, renouncing sin because God has my whole heart. Christ has my whole affections. And the reward is that you'll get to see God. This kind of echoes back to Moses getting to meet face-to-face with God and his face shining because of it. Isaiah chapter 6, where the cherubim can't look at God, right? And Isaiah comes before, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, and then touches the coal to his mouth, and then all of a sudden, singleness of heart. Here I am, Lord, send me. Well, you're going to (laughs) die. It's going to be awful. It's going to be the worst ministry ever. Send me. I don't care. I'm about one thing now because I've been cleansed. I'm pure in heart now. I'm about one thing. Access, friendship, intimacy with God for the pure at heart. Congratulations to the peacemakers. This is number, what, six, seven? Verse nine, congratulations to the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So this is the value. Proactive reconcilers. This is not merely peacekeepers. This is people who identify conflict and go at it. Peacemakers. They see conflict and they go out. And they do something about it. They're proactive reconcilers. This assumes that they have a distaste for conflict and division, right? They probably don't like Twitter very much, right? They are not ones to stir up division. So this would presume a a hate of gossip, a hate of slander. The disposition of the, of the peacemaker would be to go, hey, you, stop talking about them, let's go talk to them, and I will go with you, right? Reconciliation. I love when people get over their issues together, when they make peace with each other, a willingness to get dirty, a willing to stand in the crossfire, to go, you know what, I know I'm going to step into a war zone here to try to bring these two together, and I know I'm going to pay a price for it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Psalm 34, 12 and 14, this is an Old Testament theme. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Not just keep the peace, sort of stay out of things. I don't take sides. No, I'm getting in the middle of it. I'm still not taking sides, but I'm, we're going to fix this, right? That's the disposition of the kingdom citizen is to step towards danger, towards conflict, and fix it. Where else do we see this in the sermon? Matthew 5, 43 through 47. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because you're fundamentally a peacemaker. So you're reducing the number of enemies you have all the time. I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father, which is what, what does the beatitude promise? Be sons of God. He's bringing up the same theme, who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You're not a peacemaker. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. That's not the mark of the kingdom. The kingdom citizen, you just love who, you, who love you. You just agree. You just get along with people who agree with you. That's no, you don't get any reward from Jesus for that. Even if you're right, no reward for that. Peacemaking is what I'm calling you to. And what's the reward promise? Obvious family resemblance. You look like your father. God was at enmity with with people. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Consider Christ himself. To bring peace between God and man by his own life, death, and resurrection, there is nothing that resembles the Son of God than to be a godly, self-sacrificing, initiative-taking reconciler. It is such a defining mark of the kingdom that the most obvious label that people will assign to you is Son of God. Isn't that amazing? Nothing looks more Christ-like and more divine than the peacemaker, the person who steps into danger. I love what my friend says. He's a pastor, and he just says, go right at it and insist on peace. I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's not easy. 
doesn't mean it's always going to work out, but it does mean that's the disposition. Not I'm right, I deserve, but no, I, I will lay down my rights to go make peace, and I will help you make peace. Imagine if you had a church full of peacemakers. You start getting a conflict with somebody, and all of a sudden you got a whole church going, up, oh, up, oh, we're peacemakers. Like, we're not going to let you go very far. We're going to sit down, we're going to work this out. That's what the kingdom's like. And lastly, the last beatitude, this is taking me longer than I expected, but these are so good. <laughs> beatitude number eight, congratulations to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So now we're back to righteousness again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're injured for being godly, you're injured because you're poor in spirit, because you mourn your sin and you get mocked, because you're meek when people want you to grab the reins of power and exec- you know, to blame others, but you're meek instead willing to trust the Lord. If you're mocked for that, if you're mocked for your desire to be right with God, if you're mocked for showing mercy to people who don't deserve your mercy, if you're mocked and injured for being pure in heart, for being devoted to one thing, if you are injured by the world because you're trying to make peace and people don't want peace, you pay a price for that, Congratulations. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you're injured for godliness, congratulations. Jesus stands with you. So tomorrow's Memorial Day. Maybe some of you will go to a cemetery and you know the little coins that are on the top of the headstones? Do you know what those mean? For a long time I didn't know what those meant. But just to help you out, maybe go do it tomorrow. A penny means that you just visited. Just lets the family know that you visited, which is a kind gesture. The nickel means that you and the deceased trained at boot camp together. So you have a connection with them. If you see a dime on that headstone, you serve together with them in some capacity. And the quarter, the quarter means that you were with the soldier when he was killed. That when he made the ultimate sacrifice, when he paid the ultimate, you were there with him. So the quarter is the most treasured of all because I was with them when they made the ultimate sacrifice. And this beatitude is a bit like Jesus putting the quarter on whatever suffering you went through. I was with him, and I saw it, and I honor it, and I will honor it before everybody. If they pay a price, even the ultimate price, any price, I am with them, and I will signal that I have been with them. This last beatitude is so sweet. So to capstones, if you get mocked and injured for being identified with my kingdom, I'm with you, and I will honor you. It's the quarter on your own headstone. Psalm 23 talks about this shepherd that leads and guides and protects his people through so many dangers. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The very next verses, Jesus double-clicks on this, Matthew 11 and 12. So now he transitions. I think we're done with the Beatitudes, and this is a transition now, and a double-clicking on that last Beatitude, because look what he says. Congratulations to you when others revile you, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So he gives some species of persecution, different kinds, like what people say about you. They revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you. They don't get it. They don't get the kingdom value citizen and you're paying a price for it and it's not fair. Jesus goes, hang in there. I will reward you. So he goes from the, set, the third person talking about the characteristics of the kingdom to the third, like he's looking people in the eye. He says, congratulations to you. When others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You will be honored for the price that you paid. I'll pay it back. I'm good for it. There's a quarter on your headstone. I'm with you, and I will honor you. And here's why. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we have this transition then into the rest of the, the, the sermon, but you get the whole kingdom. You pay a price for being a part of the kingdom. You pay a price for working for the things, for valuing the things that this world despises and despising the things that this world loves. You get the kingdom. Gifted righteousness within, the first four Beatitudes, lived righteousness outward. And the congratulations and approval of God. You're a kingdom citizen. You get his honor. A couple right and wrong responses as we close here. So if you don't mind giving me just a few more minutes. I want you to recognize the contrast between the world kingdom values and the kingdom kingdom values, right? If these things are blessed in the Christ kingdom, they're so opposite the world's kingdoms. 
If we were to create a kingdom kingdoms, the world kingdoms beatitudes, it would sound like this. So just hear the contrast. Blessed are the financially secure, for theirs is the kingdom of pleasure. Blessed are those who feel good about themselves, for they shall be self-confident. Blessed are the aggressive, for they shall control the narrative. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for attention, for they shall be noticed. Blessed are the fault finders, finders, for they shall be on the right side of history. Blessed are the sexually liberated, for they shall live their truth. Blessed are the divisive, for they shall be called children of power. Blessed are those who are praised by the world, for theirs is the kingdom right now. Two totally different kingdom values. Which one do we swim in all the time? Which one are we tempted to be a part of? And here's the one that we're called to be a part of. Know that the payoff promise is connected only to those who love and cherish these values, virtues, descriptions of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is only for the poor in the spirit. The comfort of Christ is only for those who mourn their sin. The earthly inheritance is only for the meek. The gift of satisfying righteousness is only for those who hunger and thirst for it. The mercy of Christ is only given to those who actually will give it away. The awe of seeing God is only to those who possess a pure heart. The title, Sons of God, is only for those who resemble the peacemaking initiative of Christ Himself. And the kingdom of heaven is only for those whose fruit of righteousness costs them something in this life. I want you to see that Jesus is the living embodiment of these values, qualities, and characteristics. I got this straight from Kevin DeYoung. He's one of my favorite preachers. He influenced so much of this message, actually, but I just took this straight from his message, so just know this is from him, but it's so good. He says this opening section of the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom. It's about how to live. It's about Jesus. Every beatitude describes him perfectly. The one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Is that not the ultimate poverty in spirit? The one who called himself a man of sorrows says, blessed are those who mourn. The one who himself called himself meek and lowly. Jesus is the one that Malachi predicted would be the son of righteousness. The one who comes to us as a merciful high priest extending mercy to us, as Hebrews tells us. The one who is not just pure in heart, but is the holy one of Israel. The one who is not just a peacemaker, but the prince of peace. And the one who was shamefully put to death on a cross as our suffering servant. Every one of these beatitudes is giving the character of Christ himself. So the call is to become like Christ, to come to him for the things we don't have, to become like him because, because he has gave himself for us, and to join him in this journey of kingdom living that's going to be upside down that might get you killed. It got him killed. But oh, the congratulations and the reward for those who forsake their sin and turn to Christ, and walk with Him, and become agents of the kingdom, ambassadors of Christ. Speaking to a world kingdom, living in enemy country, advocating for a different country. Living this kind of way, inwardly dependent on the Lord, outwardly blessing others. So, a few questions and we're done. Are these values, virtues, descriptions beautiful to you? Do you actually desire them? If you don't find them beautiful, then you won't like Jesus. <laughs> this is what he celebrates. And if your heart is not inclined to celebrate these things too, then the kingdom is really going to be pretty frustrating for you. If you celebrate what he rejects and he celebrates what you reject, then I would encourage you not to become a Christian. You're just going to be frustrated and you're going to confuse the outside world of what it means. But if you find the beauty in these then Christ is what you want. Christ is what you need. This is the qualities, values, and virtues of His kingdom. If you submit to His rule, it is because He's creating the desire in you already by the Holy Spirit. If you're seeing these as beautiful and you're desiring them, that's evidence that Christ is calling you, calling you to respond in these ways. Do the first four Beatitudes describe your internal disposition for, before God? I have no righteousness of my own and I grieve my sin. I don't blame anyone else for it, and I want your righteousness. If that marks you, congratulations. You're a kingdom citizen if you've turned to Christ with that disposition. Do the second four Beatitudes describe your external disposition towards your brothers and sisters in the world? Do you love showing mercy 
giving away kindness without keeping track, without calculating the cost, just giving away mercy? Do you love being a peacemaker? Do you love being pure in heart, like your life clearly is pointed at one thing? Your finances, your time, your relationships are pointed at one thing. And are you paying a price for your godliness? Congratulations. You're a kingdom citizen. The king delights in you, and you're becoming like him. So that, just a moment of reflection, let's just take one minute and just quietly in your own heart respond. However it is that the Lord's responding, if it's one of these beatitudes, if it's the whole thing, whatever it is, Lord, I come to you poor in spirit, mourning my sin, not blaming anyone else, hungering for your righteousness. Lord, I desire to be merciful. I desire to be pure in heart. I desire to be a peacemaker. And I will pay whatever price. You just do whatever business you need to do before God right now. I'll give you just a moment to do that, and then we'll close with a song. God, we come before you with great humility. These Beatitudes create such a conflict in my own heart and mind. I know how little of this that I have in myself. And that's exactly the point that we come to you with nothing in our hands and ask you to transform us, to take our broken, sinful lives and to make something of them. We thank you that you have made it clear what you will do with us if we come to you. We can't opt out of any of these beatitudes. These are the qualities that you and yourself embody, that your church, that your culture, that your kingdom ultimately is marked by. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us an affection and a desire for all of them. And I pray that we would work together to cultivate these kinds of Beatitudes, that people would read the Beatitudes and be able to look at Redeeming Grace Church and see a match. Not perfect, but, but clear. Ah, uh, yes, these people are part of the kingdom. Lord, I pray for each individual person here who's doing business with you. And Lord, I don't know what your spirit, exactly how you are convicting them now, but I pray that they would not walk out of here not having done business with you not having your spirit, your kingship, your rule, your reign, your word, uh, gain the victory over their lives. So I, I pray, Lord, that each one of us would be encouraged by the current congratulations and humbled by the glory that you are offering to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to look to him and trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.